0: Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. Uh, the great Bob Mold is here. And Bob, I liked it when we first said hi, you pronounced your name, even though you should know that as a 54-year-old man who grew up listening to Dr. I I had you, I knew it was Mold. I didn't think it was Mold. It's either you were way,
1: either, either way, depending on what side of the pond we're on. <laughs> yes, but you were
0: gonna be you were gonna be safe with me, I promise, on that. And great. uh Bob Mould who is a genius, certified genius um and uh from uh Husker du to uh Sugar to the albums he made uh, under his own name. Um the work has been constantly It's funny Bob I, I heard you describe re- recently as one long song and I understand what you mean by that but I I, I would just say uh it has been an artist's uh, an artist's life that we've been able to dip into uh, oh, as thank you. as fans and listeners and and um the work rewards close attention, and so thanks for doing this on the eve of the release of your newest album, Blue Hearts. And I guess I wanted to start here, man, which is um, the new album ain't no Sunshine Rock. So, it's no, it not. No, <laughs> no. I I read some interviews you did around Sunshine Rock, and and an album I loved, and I've tried. I I um I actually tempt a bunch of billions uh, episodes. Uh, Again, songs on that I haven't been able to nail a song that like really landed in a scene yet, but I've really tried on your last few albums, especially such on rock. So I know that album super well. And I read these interviews where you talked about why you decided, yes, despite the times I'm doing this, but dude, what the fuck, man? What, what well, happened?
1: What well, the- happened two more years. You know, you, we, <laughs> a, we ask ourselves, can you, can, do you want four more years of this? I, after two years, I was ready to tap out and then two, and then we got two more years. I was like, Okay. Maybe I should speak up just in case nobody is certain as to which stand, which side of the <laughs> fence I'm standing on. Uh yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, I, you know, back in, you know, back in 2018 when I was recording sunshine rock and getting ready for the 2019 release, you know, I had just, I, you know, the two albums prior to that were both, uh, you know, darker affairs. They were informed by the loss of each of my parents in succession. And, uh, I just, you know, moved to Berlin and really tried to get a fresh outlook and set about writing an optimistic record to try to get out of the the funk of the last couple albums yeah. of the years prior. Um, and American Crisis was actually written for that album, so we'll 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 fold that yes. in as we move forward. But uh, yeah, I guess what happened is I started playing a lot of guitar. And when I came back to, you know, when I came back to America at the end of 2019, ostensibly for holidays and recording, but now I'm, now I'm here full time. I, uh, I think re, you know, leaving Berlin and leaving sort of the, the land of news as news, not entertainment, and coming back to America, which yeah. yes was terribly divided at this point. I, I my head started to burn again.
0: <laughs> so. Yeah. And so you decided that 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 you wanted to, in a plain-spoken way, uh, uh, really, because it's both, you know, it's sonically, but also lyrically. You're pretty direct on this record. I don't have a lyric sheet, but the way I've listened pretty closely, and it does seem like you're um, you want your listeners, your longtime fans, to know you consider this a crisis point. You know, you use the word, and and I think also you, it's 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 pretty pretty clear, uh, you know, forecast of rain. It's just pretty clear what you see. And and why did you decide to be so direct?
1: Uh, well, I mean, I have written songs for most of my life. I started writing songs when I was nine years old. Uh, obviously they were not political songs. They were songs about my dog and about flowers and my mother and stuff like that. Um, with Who's Du, my first band in the nineteen eighties, we were part of an American underground scene, which some people call hardcore punk. Some people watched that turn into alternative rock, and uh, you know, along the course of that decade, there was a lot of political songs that eventually gave way to personal politics. Yeah. So, so it's not it's not unusual for me to write. Yes. You know, with a with a with a with a with a hostile government in mind or with a, with a group, you know, like the evangelicals who were in the eighties making life very difficult for me and the rest of uh, the rest of the gay folk at the time. So, you know, I, I I don't know. I just guess enough is enough. And, you know, using a blunt mallet this time, as opposed to allegory. And, and, and I guess, you know, just a quick example, if you're familiar with Sunshine Rock, if you go back to the song, Irrational Poison, which was song six, I believe, at Close Side One. Um, at first listen, you're probably thinking, oh, this is like a you know, great 70s pop song, you know, about summer adventures. And, you know, it was actually about, you know, the plight of the Syrian migration across the Mediterranean. And not one single person noticed it. So that's sometimes what happens when... Yeah, sure. We, we right. Use that, we use yes. When we stuff.
0: live in a place of allegory and <laughs> metaphor. And no, but also that album was was uh, very clearly uh, an album with a lot of uh, candy in it for us, you know, and, and an album you can sort of sing along to and rock out to. And, and uh, from a sort of... Audio semiotics point of view, you're not pointing us in a way to uh I'm I'm trying to change the way you think on this album. It's more of a change the way you feel album, to me mm-hmm. anyway, as a listener. Whereas this album is quite clearly a change the way you think and feel album.
1: At, at, the, at the least, consider the author who you've listened to for decades. And, you know, when the author of these songs feels like his existence is being threatened Yes, you know, and especially yes. You know, the, the most recent events. I'm a little yes. concerned.
0: <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm concerned. I mean, I'm concerned too, man, you know, and, and, um, and it's funny, I was listening to this album obviously before Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, but, mm. but then listening again this morning, it was like, Oh fuck. It was bad before. Uh, but the album's great. You know, look, the album is also, uh, I just had this fascinating time, Bob, uh, reading reading your memoir because I felt oh, I felt a great deal of pressure before talking to you because you mean so much to people, and as you say in the book, you know, um, your particular form of fame or celebrity or whatever we call it, and it's you know it, it's evolved over the years um, with the spinning and everything, but the the small as you said a small group to whom you're incredibly important and so I I'm aware of those people who are going to care a lot about this conversation as well as the broader audience that just knows Bob Molds a an artist that they care about you know
1: yeah it's um. You know, thanks for the kind words about Blue Hearts. It's, uh, I, I mean, you know, the, the journey to get to the record that you're hearing and we're talking about now, you know, it really did start back in April of 18 when I was in Berlin and I wrote American Crisis and I think that song took less than 10 minutes to write. Hmm. And it was one of those ones where I don't know if you have this as a writer where you know, it's just sort of this visceral outpouring happens and you don't even remember that it happened. And you stop for a moment and inhale and you look at the words on the page and you're like, uh, I'm not changing any of those.
0: Those are the bad I mean, you know, we live for those. I mean, those are the things that we live for. You know, you, it's that feeling I've described on here. that feeling where you're kind of like, um, you're barely tethered to the earth yet it's somehow you're hyper-present at the same time, you know, yep. and you're just in the ether in the best way for writers. It, it uh, Well, you never know when it's going to happen. So, you, so did that become like the North Star for you for the album, though? You wrote that track, and did it point you in a direction?
1: Uh, recorded the track uh, for Sunshine Rock and then shelved it, so I had that in my back pocket. As 2019 went on and Sunshine Rock came out and the band did the touring, and then I was in Europe in the summer of 19 doing solo electric festivals, I think it was just about this time last year where that terrible sense of deja vu started setting in with me. Yes. And it was specifically, oh my God, year three of this Trump business feels an awful lot like year three of that Reagan business. Yes. And I started thinking about, oh, these television personalities who have all of this backing from evangelicals who become president and... And we're setting these culture wars in motion, and you know, it just all felt so familiar and so scary because I somehow got through that first run of it in the 80s in one piece, I think, and it just really sort of crushed me a little bit to think, oh my gosh, there are young people who do not know what's coming. You know, uh, they, you know, maybe they just think, oh, that crazy person who's president, you know, we don't let's not give that any lip service or let's look at it this way or look at it that way. I'm like, um, no, this is a, really seems like a calculated effort to take America back to some dark ages that I really right. don't want to remember.
0: And, and, and unlike and unlike um, unlike Reagan what we have here is someone who's purely calculated like you know Ralph Reed did a brilliant thing the way that he turned the evangelicals into a political uh, army around the time of Reagan right and mm-hmm. and just after Reagan but but Reagan was an easy target because he, that aligned with his values but now as a look you and I you don't know this about me but I'm a lifelong pro wrestling fanatic so oh, boy, so you know I know so so with with what we have with Trump though is is actually someone who's pure Carney. He actually doesn't have a belief. He's just Carney. Yep. And, and he's just going to set up the rigged game and he's going to play it for his own benefit. And that's more dangerous. He doesn't care. In fact, my wife made a brilliant tweet last night where she said, if, uh, if Trump's paid for an abortion for you, now's the time for you to tell us, because we know that he has, right? Right. The ra- And, and, and it's like, uh, so it's scarier to me than the Reagan times is all I'm I I I would say I mean you were living through the AIDS crisis in a very personal way so there was also that fact of what Reagan you know the harm Reagan caused um yep. and but but, sci- but look you know it's funny right that the this thing now covid it, um Trump is handling as irresponsibly as as Reagan handled AIDS I think
1: yeah. And, 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 you know, I mean, I, tr- you know, I try to be a good person and think, okay, I remember back to 1981 and it was all of these, you know, these, you know, comorbidities that presented themselves in, you know, unique vectors. Mm-hmm. And so there was all that time of, is it airborne? Is it saliva? Is it blood? Is it all these things? So I, you know, trying to be a good person, I I try to give the benefit of, yeah, I remember that confusion but to have an administration who exacerbates whatever questions science is trying to ask yes. in a straightforward manner, and then obfuscating, you know, yes. you know, simple simple truth. Yeah, it's totally. And when you say Carney and you say pro wrestling, I I remember when Trump started to look like a serious candidate. I I spoke with Michael Azarad, who helped me yes. with the editing of my of my autobiography. And I just said, you know, he's tight with the wrestling folks, right? Like he's Carney, You know this.
0: Yes, he is. you'll, You'll
1: see how this is. You'll see this game. And, you know, that time that I had in pro wrestling was 1999. And that was right at the beginning of reality TV as well. So yeah, uh, man, yeah, no, it's all right. I don't want to get, oh, but, but
0: this is why this album. <laughs> no, I know. I, but read it. I mean, that's why, so I was going to say the, the pressure I felt. So I wanted to read, even though you you know, you wrote your memoir in 10 years ago where it came out, I guess 2011, 2011 um, yeah. you came out in 2011. Uh, but I felt like I needed to read it because as well as I know your work, I, I felt like I didn't want to talk to you without reading it. And I'm so glad that I did read it be, because, um, which is funny because you probably did interviews around the book where the people didn't read it, but I actually read the whole thing. But something <laughs> that was, yeah, but something that 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 was um, fascinating to see, and and in particularly in the way that Trump talks about his own intelligence, is you know you talk about the fact that you were tested at a 175 IQ as a young person, and uh, and I I've read a lot about what uh, the knowledge of that does to 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 uh, to people in terms Mm -hmm. of being raised with the awareness that you're brilliant because your parents hid other things from you, but they did not hide that from you. And I'm wondering what you think the like sort of lingering effects of, of, of sort of being told you're freakishly smart at a young age were on you. Uh,
1: you know, I pro I probably didn't think much of it as a young child, and then you know hormones kick in, and I was just doing whatever, whatever you know, whatever young men do in high school, more or less. Yes. Uh, as soon as I got to McAllister College, I quickly realized that that test meant nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I uh, I I went to you know I was I was I was lucky enough to receive an underprivileged scholarship to Macalester College in 1978. You know, and the idea was I would go there for three years and study mathematics, and then I would transfer to Washington University in St. Louis for two years of you know get my master's in engineering, some type of mathematical engineering, and uh, you know immediately arriving on campus and being told that I was going to tutor third year, you know, high level calculus students, never having seen this form of mathematics before. Yes. I was like, uh, I think I better reconsider all this. And I'm certainly not as smart as I was told I was. So.
0: Well, you know, there's an amazing book. Have you ever, cause you're such a, you're like a reader and, and you study things. Have you ever seen this book, Nurture Shock, by Ashley Merriman and Poe Bronson?
1: No, no. What's,
0: it's 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 well, what it's fascinating about that book is um it talks about how when kids are told they're that smart, the first even if they are that smart, the first time they're met with a challenge and they weren't told that they did well before because they worked hard. They just start to believe exactly what you said. Well, that test is bullshit because you weren't told you doing well because you worked hard. So your answer isn't elbow grease. Your answer is, huh? I must not be as smart as they as they said I was, and it leads you to give up more quickly. Um, in the it's like this, and it was really helpful. It's the only book that was useful to me as a parent, actually, because it wow. made me aware. Well, the book made me aware. I, I mean, people, people, I don't want, but my, my son was very gifted in a certain way. And I, but I didn't want to, I didn't want to sort of like, um, uh, tell him you, Oh, you're so smart. I instead talked about work hard. And then when my daughter was born her too, like the idea was stressed that they do well. Cause they work hard. And so I wondered about that for you. Cause then it seems later you figured that out. Cause there's this incredible moment in your book. Where you're talking about your uh, new, new drummer who comes in, or, or no, a um, uh, uh, bass player, I guess, who comes in, and you say, he was a worker, uh, just like me, and I knew we were going to be okay. Yep. And I'm wondering how you figured that out about yourself, how you went from someone who was told, hey, you're gifted, then it didn't work out that way. And how much of a difference did that make for you, the grit, the ability to do the damned work? And how did you figure out that was a difference maker for you?
1: Well, I think, you know, from that moment that I just described where I realized that everything I had been groomed for, I was, it was, was well over my haircut line. So it it, it was like, uh, okay, I better, better make some adjustments. You know, in, in college, I I switched towards sociology and urban studies and that felt more natural to me. It was more about, you know, reading and understanding people. And I could bring things that I knew, you know, statistics and geography and sort of fold all that together. And also having this punk rock band, who's Du, and, you know, becoming part of a, you know, an incredible scene in the 1980s, you know, the early 80s, all over North America and all over the world, there were hundreds of bands who were you know, we were at a loss to, as to what to do with our work, you know, people back then it was like, you know, hair metal and, you know, AOR rock and, and the, yes. the, the, end of disco. And there was no way anybody like me was going to fit into that, you know, that, you know, private planes and cocaine lifestyle. And
0: well, that was later for you, the cocaine lifestyle for
1: six weeks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: But, but well, cause like, um, I guess, uh, uh chronic town came out in 80, right. And, and I think right didn't I think Chronic Town came out in eighty. So when, when did
1: eighty one? I think I think Radio Free Europe might have been eighty. The single.
0: So maybe the the hip tone yeah, single maybe yeah, was eighty exactly, and, and then maybe eighty one, and then you guys were eighty two or eighty
1: three. Uh, we started in seventy nine, and with the first, first album. First first album was a live album that was recorded on a homecoming show in right. August of nineteen eighty one. It was the album was called right. Land Speed Record and. You know, that I think that first, you know, you talk about Worker, I think that first yes. tour where Husker du went out, you know, you know, we had a couple leads for a couple places to play in Western Canada. And then, you know, it just one town led to the next town and these connections and seeing these other people who were, who had next to nothing in their lives. I mean, none of us had money. We were all living on the generosity of other bands when we showed up in their town. And it sort of kept developing and building this incredible community that, you know, I'd like to think by the end of the 80s changed, you know, changed the world a little bit.
0: It did change the world. I mean, it gave people like, I mean, you know, um, it's fun. I, it, I came to Hooskerdoo later uh, because I went to college in 84 and I didn't, and I was a metal guy and I R.E.M. was my way into the scene and then it was R.E.M. and the replacement for me. And I didn't find Husker Du till Sugar made me mm-hmm. go back to Husker du years, years later, you know, mm-hmm. but, but all, that whole scene did change the world. But what you were just talking about, and, and I want to talk about your influence because it, that's the other thing that led me back to your music was falling in love with bands like the Pixies and then mm-hmm. realizing, yeah. uh, and you know, even today, by the way, I, I don't want to not skip around, but I, I had this question I asked. you, I'm just asking after it came to my head. When you hear um, a band like Fucked Up and who I think are a brilliant band, I think Damien's incredible. I think they're a brilliant band. But when you hear a band like Fucked Up and you know there's going to be a generation of young kids listening to that band and it's so clear what your influence on them was, Mm -hmm. how do you process that? And does it ever get you, uh, does it get you annoyed? Do you, do you love it? How does that, you know, when you hear David comes to life by Fucked Up, what does that experience feel like to you? I'm glad somebody listened. (laughs) right right
1: and i'm glad that they found what the what the purity of of whatever that rage was back in the 80s you know just that you know just that these brief short bursts of of angular guitar music that has you know pretty deep melodies and you know has a social conscience and you know you know staying you know trying to stay pretty true to the independent work ethic, you know, working with, you know, smaller labels and doing a lot of the hard work yourself. I, you know, when I see fucked up or I see, you know, the, God, there were so many Bands, you know, Japan droids
0: or Cloud things.
1: Oh, yeah, of course, Mets or Titus Andronicus, you know.
0: Well, you got to work with them. I love Titus, but you got to work with them, so that felt like a full circle kind of a thing.
1: Yeah, and bands like you know, even in ba- even bands a little before the you know before the last decade, you know, like the Hold Steady. I mean, there's been wow. you know people who really get who get <laughs> yes. that, get the message right. It's I... sort of the, it's sort of when people say, "Oh, punk this, punk that." It's like no, Hot Topic punk is different than. The real punk, because that's the way punk looks. That's not the way punk is.
0: Yes, I. Oh no, you and you and Craig Finn. So they're the whole study are basically my favorite band, and Craig and I are friends. And I was texting Craig as I as I was reading your book. Craig and I were texting. So (laughs) so I yeah we were texting. I was like, dude, did you get to this part of the you know? Because he'd read it ahead of me, and so we were just texting yesterday about the book. And uh, because your influence is different. Well, okay, but speak about this a little because there are people listening to this who actually might not understand. You know, I also am a Velvet Underground fanatic and what people said about the Velvet Underground is true about Husker Do. And the reason I bring up a band like Fucked Up is, you know, that's three or four generations past when you were doing that kind of music, right? It's three or four generations later and, and yeah, sure. You could bring Titus also, but, but I think about those acts and it's, it's 30 years, like 40 years later, you know? Um, and so how does it hit you? That whole thing? Do you understand? I uh, guess it's,
1: it's just hitting me now that you're laying it out like that.
0: Right. But it's true. Right. I mean,
1: I know, I know it is generations. Cause if you, you know, the logical, you know, the logical hopscotch is who's good to pixies to Nirvana, to whatever happened in 1996 that. <laughs> made me turn away from guitars yes. to, to those who, you know, 10 to 12 years later reclaimed it in its purity and, and, and took that, you know, took the, the healthy parts of the message and the community ideas and, and brought that into the 2010s. Yeah. Yeah. That is a lot of generations. What, what God, what was I doing?
0: <laughs> yeah. Right. No, that's funny. But when you see that, I guess the thing is, when you see that, that it, the lineage that, where, where, you know, you talk about that Sugar sold 300,000 albums, which today is just so many albums, you know, on your first album with with, with Sugar. Mm-hmm. But that you settled into a thing where you were selling 60,000 or 75,000, which is still so many albums today. Yes. But but the influence is... And, and Husker Du never sold 300,000 albums, right? On an
1: album. No, not that I know of. I mean, Zen Arcade, maybe over time, is probably the biggest seller, I would think, just because, sure. you know, because it's the album that the critics... Picked up on and they held it up and it sort of you know that's it that's, wasn't
0: Candy Apple Gray bit because the Grant song a bit the the big like the biggest the album Lone or no? Lonely? Um, yeah n-
1: n- no it was I mean all of those final records Flip Your Wig Candy Apple Gray Warehouse they all sat in about the same sales probably around you know 150, 200 but, maybe but why
0: do you think so okay let's say which is still even then was a great thing it meant you were a real yeah, band yeah. with a real audience and all this stuff why do you think um why do you think, if you've thought about it at all, that 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 music has led to so much great music? I guess that's what I I want to know if it's if it's a uh, uh, if because because you said in the book that as soon as you were done with Zen Arcade, it like didn't matter to you anymore, and I understand what you meant by that as an artist. You go through the I, I get that, but yep. can you can you understand why, viscerally and intellectually, it's 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 launched so many bands.
1: Yeah, yeah. Because it it was. It, I, I think you know. I'm not sure I can nail this, but let me try. Try. You, the, you know, with hardcore punk, there was you know, as as that art form which started, I guess, around 1979, 1980. You know, it was, there was there was a certain style and a certain mentality to it, and it had gotten to a point in 1983 where there was all of a sudden there was a lot of rules there was a lot of ways that things had to be and i think Cooskers had bigger ambitions i think we knew we were turning the corner into a different way of looking at music and we wanted to have this expansive piece of work you know ostensibly a a concept record that we probably the loose concept came to us somewhere on i5 between portland and san francisco i don't know for sure yeah you know you're sitting in the van and you're you've got all these songs and you're getting ready to head past san francisco to la to redondo beach to total access to make this record in 40 hours and you know in the dark of night in a you know in a in a in a a professional studio where you get the discount rate and you're using used bgs charge tape and all that stuff you know the mythology of it i i i I get I get all of that. You know, honestly, when I was talking earlier about that three-year deja vu, I mean, that was the deja vu, you know, that took me back to the weeks leading up to recordings at Arcade. I mean, that, you know, that fall of 83 was when that record was made. And, you know, just really, to me, it was thinking about what, who was I and what did I have and what did I do with it? You know, and I was like this 22 year old going on 23, this, you know, gay kid with no sexual identity, a guitar, you know, an amp with a 12 inch speaker in it and a a sleeping bag and a bag of clothes and a van that I could sleep in. And that was about it. And, you know, we actually accomplished a lot with at least me personally. I felt like I accomplished a lot with just those few things. Yes. So that was sort of like that's. You know, so I, you know, have revisited that moment in time as a way to get to this new record. You know, just really like, what can you, what was I thinking about then? And what,
0: how did I get all that done with so, you
1: know, so few tools?
0: How how much did you think, do you think, I've talked, I talked to Jason Isbell about this and it fascinates me endlessly, which is, I think a key is melody. And Mm -hmm. I think that. Even though a lot of the punk bands had melody, you had a sense of melody you have always had, and Grant had it too, I think. A sense of melody that even within the power of this wall of sound, this this with that had that sheen from the layering of the the whole thing, there was this melodic um, ear can't. There always was this sort of melodic sensibility that would just live on in the listener for a long time that you had to put in the work to listen enough that cause you buried the vocals and all that stuff. But I do think when I hear the bands that, that re- really do remind me of, of what you do, you know, black Francis and Kim were great at writing melodies. And I think Damien writes great melodies or whoever writes the melodies and fucked up. And like, uh, I do think, where do you, did, did the melodies just occur to you? Did you work at that part in the book? You know, you talk about the working at the words more than you talk about, Working at the melodies—you almost never write about working at the melodies.
1: Yeah, the melodies were there from the get-go. Um, you know, in you know, I was born in 1960, and in the late 60s, my parents bought a like a mom and pop grocery store, and the people in the small town I grew up in who, who sold tobacco and beer to my dad's store—they were the same company who stocked the jukeboxes out on the highway. Right. so I would ha- so I had all of these and I still have to this day they're actually in our within arm's reach right now all of these great mid late 60s jukebox singles oh, you know that's so that's awesome. like you know that's Beatles Beach Boys birds Hollies who Dave Clark five you know Jimmy Webb writing for the fifth dimension of course. you know so I mean that was the stuff that kept me alive as a pre-teenage kid yeah so, I mean, once you get, you know, once, if you grew up listening to nothing but that. Those oh, that's melodies, fascinating. So that's sunk in. Are, they're always there. Yeah. No, I used oh, to Oh, that's awesome. I would, I would memorize label copy. It was like, it was crazy. It was the, it was the thing that drowned out the, the chaos of my sort of violent childhood. And, and that's where the melodies came, started. And, you know, it, 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 you know, just in terms of songwriting, I think it's really important to have a hook you know, something catchy, something subversive, a melody that people may find themselves humming yes. with or without the words. And then they build, you know, that attachment gets built to the melody. And then, you know, I mean, you and I probably do it. You hear a jingle or you hear a, you hear a, a melodic line, and then you have to, what were the words to that? Yes. Yeah. That's, that's it's simple. And,
0: and you, uh, uh, and that just happened though. That wasn't the kind of thing where, you would start you didn't have to grind on the melody the way you grinded on the words
1: yeah the words the were word, that was that was you know that was a different side of the brain i think it was you know because you're with words you're you know for better or worse i felt conscious about what i was writing whereas melodies yes. are melodies are very unconscious so it yeah working more at words trying to you know, write what you know, try to try to stay true to what you, what you are and, you know, and, and wording things properly. And yeah, that was a, that was a lot more work that did not come as naturally as melody to me. But I think with Curse, once we started upping the melody and going a little more pop, it just, it brought a bigger audience. It, it, it seemed more, more logical to us as opposed to getting hung up on. Yes hardcore dogma it was like let's chase this pop thing a little bit let's change it from you know let's 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 chase this pop thing from a psychedelic point of view you know from a more of a 60s point of view traditional pop songs and that's i think that's how that all happened as an artist each
0: time god there's so many things i want to ask you okay as an artist each time you made one of these shifts. It seems to me you didn't worry about the consequences till after. You know, the electronica one, the spit. Like, it does seem that that over and over, even if you were sort of aware that it might be considered risky, it, it seems you, you would deal with the ramifications only, really allow yourself to consider it only after the thing was basically finished. How did you train yourself to do that? <laughs>
1: Wow. Yeah. I, well, I mean, I got, you know, Husker Du was one large block of work. And when that band ended, you know, I had a year and a half to myself on a farm in Northern Minnesota to relearn the language of music, because, you know, to be, to be honest, why would I leave Husker Du only to have a band that sounds like Husker Du? Right. That, that would be, that would be ridiculous. So you know I just started listening to world music, I started messing with alternate tunings and you know started started looking at words separate from music and then putting music to words, which was a different way for me to to write at the time. Uh and the and it gave me very different results. With Sugar I went back more towards, you know, my stricter yes. pop sensibilities and then you know the the electronic era Uh, You know, in 1998, I made an album called The Last Dog and Pony Show, and I was going to step away from rock music I, I was in New York City. I was living, you know, spending all my time in the West Village and in Chelsea and building that gay identity that I never took time to consider. Yes. And the soundtrack of that identity was club music and dance music and electronic music and vocoders and all those things that when I reassembled them and put out a record... It wasn't until maybe the third show on the modulate tour that I realized people aren't getting this.
0: <laughs> no, that's a great moment in the in the book, that's a great moment. But I guess the question I'm asking is like is 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 like um less about how you how you make the stuff and more about how you will your as an artist what I'm thinking about is how you get the blinders on to just decide to follow your creative whim without really considering the downside because it does seem like you trained yourself to not allow yourself to consider the downside when you're doing the creative part, even though well, you run your business.
1: Oh no, even know earlier when you said you're an avid reader, I sort of gulped a little bit. I'm like, God, I hope he doesn't ask me too much about books. Cause I, <laughs> I'm not as big a reader as I should be these
0: days. Yes. Although I
1: just got my library card, but, Good. um, and, uh, I think, I think it's, I think it's, I, I have a, I'm very ignorant to what's going on in popular culture.
0: Okay, yes.
1: Like, I'm not – like, I really do live in my own little tiny make-believe world most of the time where it's – you know, when I start to chase an idea or I start to chase a dream or an aesthetic or, you know, I hear something – you know, that the, the, the makes me want to chase down whatever that essence is. I, yes. I, I'm, I'm really, really unaware of most things that are going on around me. When I when I get into a writing cycle, when yes. I start to shift gears, I just, I, I check out. I leave the world behind. I don't really pay attention to the business. I don't pay attention to pop culture. I just stay in my world until I've got a, what I think is a fully formed, end result project to share with people
0: that's and, and enormous.
1: At the, that's and, at that, and at that
0: point I've, I've made the commitment, you know, if I'm going <laughs> to get, if I get, <laughs> if I get slapped <laughs> down, I'm getting slapped down, you know? <laughs> right. No, but that's, so that's the answer. No, you really answered that perfectly, which is you actually hermetically seal yourself in a way from allowing yourself to like, you'll be rigorous and you'll, you'll for, um, within what you're creating, uh, you will. Stress test it on its own terms, but you're not thinking about, but beyond stress testing it on its own terms, you're not thinking about where does this fit in the culture or what will they think of me? Or you're not allowing yourself to think about that until it's done.
1: Exactly. And that which you just said, where does this fit? I mean, in 2020, you know, the songwriter, the recording artist, we have a terrible problem You know, because we've sort of handed the keys to the kingdom over to a tech company who really wants everyone to play nice in the cafeteria and who is sitting next to who in the cafeteria, you know, and whether you get accepted onto a playlist or not, you know what I'm saying? This is really hard. I do not know how new people can make original work with that kind of pressure looming over them.
0: Describe the pressure. What do you mean? Because you're you're talking about Spotify, but what do you mean? I'm
1: I'm talking about, you know, I'm talking about, you know, a model where, you know, where AI and algorithms and a company is standing between the artist and the consumer and collecting data from both sides and steering people, including, you know, I, 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 you know, I don't deal with Spotify directly. You know, maybe they're a good company. All I know is it seems a little weird to me that you know a true music fan you know would hand over you know the curation to artificial intelligence. oh you mean
0: you mean you feel like the algorithm you, you feel yeah. like the even a committed but casual music fan you think is mostly relying on the algorithm as opposed to when you and i were growing up so like you know, I, I spent, my, my dad was in the, you know, my dad made some of those singles that are in that jukebox of yours. My dad made those love mm-hmm. and Sp- my dad yeah. made the love and spoonful records, you know, so I'm which I'm sure some of oh which are Oh my gosh,
1: in. Buddha records. What
0: a crazy, yeah. right. what a yeah. crazy label that was. My, my dad was comma, you know, my dad worked with Kama Sutra, right? That was the other one. It was Kama Sutra. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that, so, but, um, so, but I grew up spending all weekend in record stores. I spent every dollar I had in the record store. I would talk to the record guys. I would listen to the radio, you know, I, all I cared about was finding the next for me books. So I would go to the bookstore and then I would leave the bookstore with my little bag of books and I would go to the record store. And that was my Saturday and Sunday for real every Saturday. And that Sunday. was
1: my Saturday and Sunday for real every weekend too.
0: <laughs> right. No, I know. So, so, so through that, right, you, you started building your own um, your own taste in a way, and then your refer your own referrals. But weirdly, I'll just be honest. I like the algorithm. I, I find that if I make enough of my own playlists with the music that I care about, then the algorithm does source me new music. I, I, I will tell you it does. I, but I talk to a lot of friends also. And I'm, I'm always using Twitter. Have you? I, I will sometimes put on Twitter. I'll say, I'm listening to this. I want to hear something that does these things. And then, yeah. like, all these fr- all these people on Twitter, like, that's how I got turned on to Car Seat Headrest before they became really famous. Like, all these people were like, you have to, to be, know this band, Car Seat Headrest. And, as a, you know, I'm 54, so I'm a little younger than you, but let's say this was seven years ago eight years something. How, how else a 47-year-old going to find Car Seat Headrest? Except I- by... I, You know, how else am I going to get turned on to that band? I don't know.
1: Uh, I, I know there is, you know, I mean, I think there's a general value to it. I just, I get, you know, I get, I get worried about the value of music because the discovery that you and I remember yes, is completely different now. And I just feel like it's. You know, I was the kid that went to the record store and, you know, there would be two or three clerks and I knew which clerk not to ask because their tastes were in a completely different direction than mine. Yes.
0: Yes. So,
1: you know, so it's sort of that it's the discovery process that I feel like, man, you know, the, every, every single stitch of knowledge and art in the world is available now. So it's that curation and yes. discovery it's, I mean, I get it. People, you know, and it's very convenient and, you know, it's sort of, it's portable and it's ethereal, it lives in a cloud and nobody has to really buy anything. Nobody has to make a pilgrimage to make an effort to add yes. that, to add the, the value of the journey to the piece of art.
0: But but so. you're right, you're right, people weren't tracking. No, I know, I I do understand, I do understand what, what you're saying. I wanna go back to um, I wanna go back to this thing you just casually mentioned, which is the way that the you and the bands would share information back in the old days. And you bring it up a few different times in, in the book, but it is a beautiful thing, I think. And it speaks to that, right? How you would have this note, these notebooks, and you would share information about Um, And and what I was thinking about was the difference between your scene and the heavy metal scene is, you know, in the heavy metal scene, all those guys were like Poison and Motley Crue were literally just sharing information about which groupie they thought gave better head. I mean, that literally... No, I mean, there were, they had like a whole system where they would share that stuff. I've read about it for real. They did. And so they would say, you know, if you're going to, if you're in Shreveport, you got to look up whatever, you know, that's what they were doing. So can you talk about the, what you and the punk bands were doing? Because when I think about Craig and the unified scene and the influence that that had on, on this idea of a scene, um, I just think it's a beautiful thing and it's sort of the opposite of this algorithmic thing. So can you talk about it a bit? Well, I
1: mean I mean like that first two scurdoo tour in the summer of nineteen eighty one, it was like we had a we had a tip on a place to play up in Calgary, Alberta. And we went there and it was like a, it was sort of like an S R O hotel and we were playing four sets a night. And then somebody said, Oh, you should call up uh, Ken Lester from DOA. You surely, you know them. And I said, yeah, I remember they came to Minneapolis and played and we met them. Yeah. I think I, and so I'd have Ken's phone number. You go, yeah, come on over to Vancouver. It's only a, 12 hour drive. We'll we'll put you up in a, you know, we've got an abandoned house down in Chinatown. We can put you up in, you know, you can just stay there. You know, the landlord never checks on it. And, you know, while you're there here to call these folks in Seattle and we would spend a week in Vancouver and then spend a week in Seattle. And then we would, you know, they'd say, "Oh, call, you know, here, call this guy in Portland." You know, they do New Wave Mondays at this club, Satiricon, You know, Poison Idea and the Wipers, and, and then, it, you know, we'd, it, and then you just end up. We'd end up at Jellybee Affer's house, and it was right. So, you know, then you're meeting, you're playing shows with bands you've never heard of and and never met, but you you play the you share a stage and you build this friendship, and then when they get ready to tour they have they have my phone number and they're like, so okay, so when MDC comes to Minneapolis, call me and we'll put on a show for you guys up there. We'll run a VFW hall or take you over to the community radio station or, or make you dinner or whatever we can do. And that, I mean, that was, the, that was sort of the baseline for that entire scene was just people playing mm-hmm. shows with other like-minded bands and seeing that they're cool people and that their hearts are in the right place. And then you sort of share your phone book with them and share your, share your floor with them. So they have somewhere to sleep after the show when they come to Minneapolis.
0: I mean, that's so move. I mean, that is so, um, that's such a moving, uh, idea, but then, then you talk about, and I don't want to reignite the war and I won't, but you talk about, you know, how the replacement's more of a rock and roll band and how did mm-hmm. you distinguish just, you know, and I'll say the, the mats are one of my favorite bands of all time, but how do you, Great band. yeah, how, Well, you guys came up together in a way, but they somehow weren't exactly in the scene.
1: Uh well, I mean, there was, you know, there was Twin Tone Records and, and the Twin Cities was the main label and, you know, they got signed immediately and, you know, they had people taking care of them. Ah, and, that's the difference. Know, th- yeah. That, that kind of stuff. Like we were, we were self-managed. We were, you know, sort of self-determined. It was a diff, you know, we were in a rougher scene. I think the replacements were, you know, they were rivals in a sense. They were good friends too. And it, um, I just think it was a di- sort of a different, a two different, slightly different worlds, and there were places where it overlapped. I mean, we all used to hang out together, but I mean, they had they had managers and labels and folks that that made things right, so they I mean, could survive ever so slightly manner. easier for them than 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 our particular struggle. So.
0: Yeah, no, that's fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about how that makes sense to me? Um, how that experience seemed different for them versus you, even though then you made the Warner brothers, you know, you did then make the Warner brothers deal and, and end up. Yep. And, and Karen was incredible by the way. Um, I loved so reading great. the way you talked about her. And, um, I remembered, you know, I knew her a little bit, uh, and I just thought the world of her. I and mean, that was a great thing about reading your book. Like all those people that I knew all these days uh, and reading about them. And, and Julie Pettibianco was the one of the great people. So yes. she's, yes. she is still remain, you know, just one of the great people. And, mm-hmm. um, still uh she was always just gr- great to me always um, giving
1: always just wanting to help it was you know and just just make things good for people It was really great
0: just a music fanatic but so smart and so plugged in and everyone always knows she has i i remember when i was in the record business and and at, um you're not supposed to be a fan anymore but she knew how much rem meant to me and and uh she called me, she was at Warner's, I guess she called me over and she was like, I can leak you the album. And I was, you know, I was like head of A&R at some label and I should not have been caring about that at all. And I like ran over to her office and she leaked me the record and That felt so punk to, like, the whole scene. You know, she knew that somewhere in me I was still the kid who just needed the album.
1: Why did they do do that to us? When you get in the business, you can't be a fan.
0: Right? What was was that about? I don't know. It killed me. No, that's one of the things. When I got to leave the record business, you know, I got to become a gigantic fan again. And I promised myself I would never... I, I promised myself that in, the, in movies and TV, I would never allow that to happen to me, and I still watch movies like a fan. And fuck it, if that makes me geeky or whatever, I don't care. Like, you know, if I when I meet Quentin Tarantino, even though he likes my work and we're professionals and we're peers. I'll fucking geek out to Quentin about his work cuz it means so much to me and I'd rather do that, man. I'd rather live that way.
1: Yeah, I'm I'm good with that too.
0: I do the same thing. So it's yeah, it's Yeah, like no.
1: I don't, don't want to not be a fan like, oh, just cuz I know how the sausage is made, you know, that kind of
0: Yeah, but it makes uh, you jaded. It can make you jaded. All right, I want to ask about this. This is really matters to me. Um okay. and I think to the audience. Y- you know, th- th- I remember when you transformed your body and your appearance and you talk about how people reacted oddly to it at first, but, but it's a remarkable thing that over and over you were able to make a decision, Bob, and really make gigantic changes. And I wonder if you have any insight into what your process on that is. Cause all you did was write down, you know, you just wrote down, like, start going to the gym, get in better shape. But, mm-hmm. and so then it's the nine mile bike rides. And I love that. I do that. Actually, I do 10 mile bike rides every 10 to 20 every day, pretty much. Yay. But it's the best. It makes me so happy. But yes. um, but, uh, but you also went. All right, I'm going to the gym every day. I'm going to become muscular. I'm going to lose all this fat. I'm gonna, and 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 you've done that in your work also, where you've said, "I'm going to make a change." Can you just talk a little bit about what your decision sort of tree looks like, or or what your decision process is? That once you reach a decision, it's almost like there's you've eliminated the possibility of not doing it.
1: Well, I think you know. I have a reputation I guess especially in my 20s of being sort of a difficult guy um, you know I saw things in black and white for a long time you know things were pretty absolute to me I mean you can you can feel it in the work you could I mean if you go back yes. and you look at interviews from the 80s with me I mean I'm I'm out of my head with with you know just these sort of strict absolutes all the time and you know I think probably a lot of that came from my dad you know, uh, you know, observing his, his erratic behavior, maybe, yeah. you know, he was, he really, he, he was, Yeah, you know, I mean, I loved my dad, but he was a tough case, right? It, it, you know, be, you know, pretty, you know, an alcoholic. Well, I would say he would abusive. be, he was,
0: he was abusive in the house to everybody, but you basically. And, yeah, and,
1: which, which still makes me feel weird to this day, but thankfully I have a good relationship with my older sister about, and we can laugh about it, but I, th- I think we laugh. Yeah. We laugh about it, <laughs> but, uh, it, it I, I just think a lot of, you know, I think the biggest decision that I can remember, you know, the decision that really sort of set all of that in motion was when I quit drinking in 1986. I think I, I talk about it in the book where it was the summer of 86 and I just woke up one day and yes. I saw my dad in the mirror and I said to myself, I have to stop this or I will die. And to sort of shut off, you know, an activity, because I started drinking when I was 13, and I didn't miss a day for 12 years. Amazing, yeah. It it To turn off something that you do for fully half of your life and all of your adult life, and it's intrinsically tied to your profession, it's almost expected. You know, because I think, you know, when people think about bands, they only think about... You know, when they, you know, when the audience arrives at the show and then when they buy a t-shirt and leave, they don't think about that when you get there at one 30 in the afternoon and there's nothing to do for three hours, except, Oh, look, they left us a whole bunch of beer in the dressing
0: room. <laughs> you know, yeah. so it's sort
1: of a business that encouraged, well, it facilitated bad behavior. I won't say it, you know, it, maybe it encouraged it too. But so, you know, for me at that point to make such a cold cut in my life and, and, and you know, I lost friends. I lost a little bit of, you know, sort of, you know, what my peers were doing because it was weird for me to go out with friends that were drinking again. I mean, that had a real profound impact on my social life and on who I was, but it, I could see the benefits of it because I was going to live because of it. So then when it came to quitting smoking or changing, you know, changing hometowns or changing, you know, my aesthetic and my work, you know, those are, those are all a little bit easier once you've taken out half of your life in one shot.
0: But for a lot of people that changing your body thing is so hard. It sure is. Well, again,
1: you know, I mean, I try to figure out why, why? Why that is, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm, you know, I mean, I have the best job in the world, right? I work on my own clock. I work on my own terms, more or less. I have, I make my own day schedule. I don't have children. I, and I know how large a responsibility that is for people as they go from 30 to 50 and it takes up all of their extra time and they don't have time to be selfish, you know, in that, in that way, in that way that, you know, I'm going to take care of my own body. Now I'm going to put two hours a day aside to do this thing. So I understand it's, you know, I have a luxury, I guess, to, to do that. Whereas I understand other people's lives are
0: busy in a different way. Did you find it hard though? When you did, when you did it, did you find it hard? Um, I was scared of it at first. I had a really good
1: trainer. And then after a month that I started seeing results, I just went in full boat. And, you know, once I think it's once any of us do anything and we see the, we see the, That's you know, really we see smart. that first sign of fruit. You just go, okay, I can see what this is going to work. Now I go, yes. full, now I go in full tilt.
0: Yeah, that makes com- complete sense uh, for sure. And I have to ask just because I, I read the book, have you been able to, because one of the things is, it's fascinating. You read the book and you, you 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 see somebody who has such awareness of his own shortcomings and his own strengths in in a way. And then some, it seems like you wanted to fix. And then there's this great moment where in the book you you talk about. And granted, the book was now ten years ago, so I'm wondering about this. You talk about I now know how to say a proper goodbye, but that doesn't mean I'm always going to do it. And uh, and I wonder, have you sort of like fixed that? part yet or not? And are you able to, are you able to, have you now been able to sort of, um, demand from the people you're in love with that they treat you as well as you're going to treat them and stuff?
1: Um, have I in the, since, since writing the book and now, um, yeah, it's 10
0: years, it's 10 years later. I
1: would say I've got maybe a, I'm about 50% successful as opposed to being a complete failure. At that. <laughs> that's, that's a lot better.
0: That's a, yeah, lot, it's a lot better.
1: better. It's, like incre- it's like exponentially better than I used to be, but I still have work to uh, do. We- and I, you know, this whole thing, I hope I get better by the end. Cause then when I say goodbye, then it's like, I don't get to change it. <laughs> yes. Yes.
0: No, because you do come away. What's fascinating yeah. is like, and no, and it's what's great about your work it, it, it there's such humanity in in your work and you've always put it on in in the records but then you know listening to this record in the before I read the book and then after and then really all of your music this desire for connection uh this partial knowledge of that you, what you have to bring to the table is special but then then the pain of not really knowing how to demand the kind of love back that you're willing to give it, it, it hurt reading the book for you, you know, as I would uh, see you repeat this pattern.
1: Yeah. it um I mean, I'm in a good place now. i got a wonderful partner. We've been together for close to 10 years and, you know, I think we, you know, I think I've, I've learned a lot. We, you know, this is always a work in progress, right? We do. You, 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 you try not to, you know, re you don't, you don't you try not to, you know, mirror the, you know, the, the, the bad things that you've done before or the bad decisions you've made. You try to yes. uh, just move, you know, it's, it's, it's a hard, it's a, it's a hard thing. You know, we, I sit here and I talk and I have a lot of emotions that I'd like to share with people and, you know, still making that sensible connection between my heart and my head. And then when it flies out of my mouth, <laughs> and I can't take it back. Like I, Brian, Ryan, I sweat that stuff really bad, just to let you know. I mean, I really do sweat that. It's like I, I woke up this morning sweating something I thought I had said, and then I went back and I realized I hadn't said it. But I literally woke up this morning like, I can't believe I said that. And then I was talking to the party because you didn't say that. I'm like, right. really? I'm like, no, I swear. Like I woke up believing I had said this harmful thing. And he said, stop, you're being stupid. You didn't know. Oh that's great. He, well that sounds like of- a
0: great back and forth actually. That sounds like a great partnership.
1: Yeah, but I get you know, but I guess yeah, the short of it is it's just like I really do sweat those things. Like I you know, again going back to the 80s where I was a, such a black and white guy and I really polarizing to people around me and I you know, I I know. You know, and, and I've tried over the decades to you know, get to peace with myself and 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 try to cut the world around me a little bit more slack and not be quite as demanding on the rest of the world as I am on myself. And, but it's still, it's that connection between, you know, what I feel and what I think and then what I say. And that's not always a graceful uh, series of connections. And I do still sweat that. And yes what's, and what's weird is as I get older and I don't know if the listeners feel this or if you feel it, but you know, You and I, I think we, you know, we, we live on the same side of the fence, right? I think we're on the good, I think we're on the good side of the fence. We try, we always try to consider people and, you know, we're all different, but we're all the same and, you know, all the good things in life, you know, but as we get older and we lose connection with the youth of the world and how fast the language changes, Words that I used to think were appropriate in describing yeah. situations. And then you all of a sudden rec- you get called out for using a word that you thought was okay a few years ago. Like the the lexicon of, of correctness moves so fast. And as I get older, I feel like I lose. Yeah.
0: And you don't confidence. want to become Archie Bunker. You don't want to become Archie oh Bunker God. thinking, thinking that everybody else is meathead. No, it's hard as you get older. You got to be aware of it. I agree with you. Um, I, I also was,
1: what do we do do with that as people? I mean, is that just the way it is? Like, oh my God, I have to, I have to like spend all my time on urban dictionary or somewhere. Well, I mean, that's, so maybe, maybe maybe
0: that's, (laughs) maybe that's one thing that, maybe that's one thing that having kids helps with, right? I have a 24 year old and a 20 year old. So like, I'm pretty much picked up on that stuff quickly if I get it wrong. And also because of what I do, I have to study the lexicon all the time. As you do as a writer, but you know, when I'm writing, because I'm writing dialogue, I have to be like aware of it. Um, It's hard. I want to talk about one other thing before I I, I let you go, because it's also in your, it mattered so much to me. You know, you said you, you lost people to suicide and you talk about not going to funerals. When I was 13, I don't know that I've ever said this in the podcast, maybe once, but the person who was my closest pal at 13, he killed himself. And uh, it was awful, you know, and um, seventh, seventh grade. And my parents didn't let me go to the funeral. And I understand why they made that choice. I also didn't get therapy. There was no therapy. I never went to therapy until I was like 30 years old. Um, but it just wasn't in the, our culture of my family and our home. And my mom didn't want me to see the parents and grandparents of this boy who killed himself. Um, you know, she didn't want me to have to see that kind of raw pain. And so obviously when I read your book and you talk about not going to certain funerals and you talk about the suicide, I just want to thank you for that because I, I've, all, I've talked about it a lot in my therapy and in my family, but it was the first time someone else articulated for me the way that that blunts a certain emotional release and that kind of like sets a certain pattern around processing death that is not great. And that happened to me. I didn't have the catharsis. Damn. I did yeah I didn't have the catharsis of the going to the funeral. And and I had to do so much work to find my way back to that. And thank you for writing about it. I really felt seen no, when I was no, reading that you, in the book.
1: You're you're welcome. I mean it's I mean it's a it's a problem, right? I never really learned closure. And that's you know like when you you know that's what funerals and memorials and things are for to everybody gets together and shares this grief and you have to process it and let go of it. And, you know, I never got, you know, I never was exposed to that as a kid, you know, again, with grandparents yes. or other people or, you know, my eldest brother who died right after I was born. It's just, you know, that kind of stuff is, you know, and for, for me, something that, you know, I'll, I'll share one back that I don't think I've, I've gotten into a lot publicly is, you know, as my dad was in his final months and we spent time together, I was able to finally speak with him and was able to sort of identify the source of the pain that caused his behavior. And it was the passing of the first child. Sure. And and, and, and even, ta- even talking with family members after that, they were just like, we had no idea. I'm like, I had no idea. You know, it's it it's so wow. sim, it's such a simple thing, but because I was raised in a sort of a closed emotional environment, it, it never even it would have never showed up on the radar, and I didn't get to that till 50, I was fifty one.
0: No, it's you know, amazing I, how much we all carry, right?
1: See, so, yeah, so I mean, we all, I mean, God, family of origin is such a powerful thing, yeah, and and and, and, de- and you know, and death and heavy circumstances take us back to those moments when we were children and siblings start to reenact rivalries. And Oh my God.
0: Well, well, listen, it's all, the great thing is, the great thing is, man, it's all in your music and it's always been in your music. And that's why your music 40 years later is still, I mean, I fucking put on the, I know, you know, people talk to me about rounders and I don't mind it. I, it's funny when you talk about Zen Arcade, like I've I've been able to come back to my first movie and I understand why people love it so much and I can actually mm-hmm. embrace it and I'm okay with it. But I do understand. Like I still go back now and I do listen to Candy Apple Gray and Zen Arcade a lot. Thank you. No, I listen to those albums a lot and they still I hear all this shit in your music. This this uh, this fracture and desire to somehow through community through music find your way back to being whole. And this new album. Is um, every bit as strong, and uh, as much as I dig Sunshine Rock, I feel like this album is really crucial right now. And I tell, I would like to advise everybody to go check out Blue Hearts by Bob Mould, and um, uh, go s- when we can go see music again. Go see Bob play; he gives us all uh, every night um, on Indeed. stage. Do you still do Blow Off or do you don't do that anymore?
1: Uh, blow Off wrapped up in early 2014. That was a, an incredible 11 years of, of DJing and partying. And So do you not to, DJ?
0: You don't DJ anymore now?
1: No, I haven't touched. I haven't, haven't, hit, the, haven't hit the steel wheels in a little bit. But, uh, <laughs> you know, maybe I've been away long enough. Maybe all the music I used to play in the 2000s is back in vogue.
0: <laughs> well, you should come back because now DJs make more money than anybody else. I mean, you can just oh salt God. that DJ money away. Uh, everybody Bob Bob Mould you can find him on Twitter uh, sometimes and uh, go get yep. his records
1: yep all across the socials it's Bob Mould music that's Facebook Twitter and Instagram
0: and Mould is M-O-U-L-D M-O-L-D. even though it's pronounced Mould gosh there was so much more but next time I'll ask you more stuff thanks for doing this Bob really appreciate it thank you Brian.